Hey, welcome back to the Wheeler Centre's Fifth Estate podcast, where we venture behind the headlines to figure out what's really happening with the issues of the day, with the help of expert guests from the worlds of politics and culture. Your host is anthropologist and broadcaster Sally Warhaft. Good evening, everybody, and a, a very warm welcome to this special edition of The Fifth Estate, our final one for the series for this year, and uh, I couldn't be more pleased um, with the, the topic and the guests that we have tonight. My name's Sally Warhaft, and uh, it is a pleasure to uh, introduce two people that um, I know will be incredibly well known to you both already. Steve Brax, of course, um, enjoyed a golden political career in this state. He was uh, the Labor Premier of Victoria for almost eight years. He retired unexpectedly. He's like a sort of cricket captain. He actually chose his moment, and um, how rare is that. Um, He's been almost as busy, I think, since uh, that particular uh, retirement chairing uh, all sorts of uh, uh, institutes and companies. Uh, The Federal Government review into Australia's automotive industry, which now can find in the history section next door, but um, it was very, very interesting. And um, he now advises and has for some time the Timor-Leste Prime Minister, and uh, it's uh, wonderful to have you here. Kirsty Sword Guzmau uh, is a humanitarian, and uh, she's a goodwill ambassador for education in Timor-Leste. Uh, born in Melbourne, got two locals here tonight. Um, and uh, Kirsty began working with East Timorese dissidents when she was at Melbourne University in the 1980s. She then went to East Timor as a researcher and interpreter uh, for a television documentary in the early 90s and since then has worked as a teacher, a human rights campaigner and has been, of course, at the forefront of Timor-Leste's development and politics before and since independence, alongside her husband, Janana. She's particularly committed to language policy uh, and how language is taught uh, and also to issues concerning women. Please give them a really warm welcome. I thought, um, Kirsty, I'll, I'll start with you, but I'd like to your, the response from, from, from both of you. It's Remembrance Day today, and um, when I was reflecting on that and the reading that I'd done for tonight, I thought I'd like to start by asking each of you um, what you reflect on uh, when you think about East Timor's um, road to independence um, and the, the the suffering and loss in conflict um, uh, that that got the country to this point. Um, when you when you think of that, what what do you think about? Um, yes, I was listening to the Remembrance Day commemorations on the radio today, actually, and um, somebody made the comment. Uh, about how important it is um, to remember those who have fought to defend, you know, um, freedom. And I was thinking to myself that, uh, you know, I think in the case of the First World War, this was very much another nation's war and one that Australia was um, dragged into as a result of, you know, loyalty to king and country, etc. Um, and I was thinking, you know, how lucky this country is that it never has had to actually fight uh, a war to defend its freedom in the same way that Timor-Leste has and hasn't had to face, you know, that awful loss of life and uh, the terrible human suffering that comes with that. Steve? Um, well, uh, Timor-Leste also was involved in one of the great theatres of war in the Second World War. And, of course, Timor-Leste was independent at that time. It was neutral, rather, under Portuguese Timor. Um, and Australia 
was worried about the Japanese in a cascading effect coming onto the shores of Australia and using Timor as a staging post. So they actually requested that they land there as a forward defence mechanism to prevent the Japanese doing it. And at the time, the, the dictator of Portugal, who was independent, it was an independent country at that time, and it was, um, it was uh, neutral, he said he didn't give permission to Australia to actually uh, land, but Australia landed anyway in, in defiance of the country, and the Japanese soon followed and came as well. And the war records are unclear on this matter, but um, it's very likely that the Japanese had no intention of actually landing on the soils of Timor-Leste, if you look at some of the war records. Rather, they were keener on um, Papua New Guinea and, the, as we know, the Owen Stanley Rage. But, of course, it was a difficult time for Timor, and we forget this because whilst a quarter of the population were killed or died of starvation in the 28 years of Indonesian colonial rule between 1975 and 1999, there was also thousands and thousands of Timorese who lost their life in the Second World War at the hands of the Japanese and at the hands of Australia in a way too, and they didn't know which way to turn. They um, eventually sided with Australia and they supported Australia, but of course it was very difficult for them at that time as well. Um, and, um, and there is still some great and fond links between Australian return service uh, people, the second, second and the second, fourth, and their descendants and the Timorese because they went out of their way to support the Australian troops at that time. They didn't have to. So there is a connection there. So when I think of Remembrance Day, I think of um, how inadvertent it was that Timor was engaged in the Second World War and they didn't need to be, and how difficult it was, of course, uh, later on in fighting for independence um, in so many... Just imagine a quarter of your population dying in a struggle for independence, either directly for incursions or through starvation, and which happened between 75 and 99, that was the condition. And yeah, we, we could only guess what that would be like, and uh, uh, that's what you talk about, fighting for independence. Mm. If I might just add to that. Um, to honour that story and those relationships and that um, debt of honour, if you like, I established a museum um, 10 kilometres south of Dili in a place called Dare, um, which is a site where the 2nd, 2nd and 2nd, 4th Commandos established a memorial to the Timorese um, back in 1969. And um, it's become quite a popular place, um, a tourist destination for both you know, local visitors and international visitors as well. And um, it really honours, you know, that terrible loss of life. And I think, you know, some records say that it's somewhere between forty to 60,000 mm. Timorese that lost their lives um, during that period in the Second World War. So it's very significant. It's an thing. unbelievable amount of trauma, isn't it? That you've, The Second World War, but also the period that, that you've just described. And then you've got this incredibly new nation state, the first nation state of the 21st century, a lot of young people. Um, but uh, where I'm sh I imagine you, you feel people's connection to their own loss um, and trauma as well as what has been gained. I, I haven't been to East Timor, but I've been to Chile, and that was a place where I felt it in everybody I met, that there'd been some connection to loss. Do you sense that today in, in Dili? Yes, it's impossible really to um, you know, meet with a single person or a single family that hasn't been affected in some way by, you know, the loss of um, a loved one and often in the most horrific circumstances. Um, you know, the recent history has just been riddled with massacres and torture and um, disappearance and, you know, all manner of human rights um, atrocities. So there is quite a deep um, level of trauma and a, quite a bit of untreated trauma too. Um, I know that when I established my foundation, the Alola Foundation, um, 12 years ago, um, one of my ideas was that we would focus our attention on trauma counselling. Um, and 
I remember having a conversation with Shanana at that time and uh, his view was that really the best way of offering people um, healing and uh, a way forward is to offer them hope in a better future for their children, better educational opportunities, better health services. Um, and that that, you know, is the best, most significant um, form of healing. And so I think I, I did come around to that view after a while. Um, and I think, you know, I don't think people are, are you know, walking around... <laughs> constantly reflecting on, on the trauma of the past, but um, I also think that it probably does impact on on people's lives in ways that maybe we, we haven't quite measured. Mm. Steve, we probably know a lot more about Kirsty's connection uh, to East Timor than we do about yours, about why... Um, this particular place for you. Uh, you're not just any old advisor. You've been there 28 times um, over years. What is it that, that you connected with? Um, well, it was a bit serendipitous in a way because I actually left as Premier. I um, resigned in August uh, 2007, about the same time that Janata Guzmao became the Prime Minister, elected Prime Minister of Timor-Leste. So he'd previously been the president. He stood then, therefore, for executive officer and became the, um, became the prime minister. And I think I had a discussion with uh, Kirsty about that time on behalf of Janana Guzmao, who, um, who said he wanted some advice and assistance on, on governance issues, um, if you like, some of the, the boring but extremely important parts of government, the checks and balances, the establishment of an independent public service, of an a corruption commission, have a strategy plan for the country, an audit function, those things which we take for granted, which none of which was there in Timor-Leste, and he wanted that established. Um, and so I obviously offered support, uh, but I didn't want to be a burden on the country at all. Um, I don't uh, I do it pro bono, but um, the support and assistance to get there and to have Kim McGrath, who's here at the front here, has uh, been working on that project uh, for the last uh, six, six or so years. So Harold Mitchell, who's a friend of, the, of both Kirsty and Janana Guzmao and also a friend of the country, he offered to support that and he has right the way through and the UN has supported a bit too. So, so it was really about, for me, I guess, uh, seeing what skills I had and learned who could assist with Janana Guzmao and the establishment of his country in the um, third constitutional government and uh, very soon after independence, only about four or five years afterwards. And, and so it's been a, a great journey. And for me, it's uh, sort of keeping a hand in politics because I can tell you what, in Timor-Leste, there's no shortage of politics. <laughs> uh, um, you get into a ta taxi, you're on the street, people talk about politics. They're engaged. They... They fought for independence. They love the fact they've got an independent country. They love their democracy. They're engaged. They're aware. They're not dispassionate about it. And, um, and so, um, you know, this is really, really important, I think, uh, from that point of view. And, uh, you know, it's something we can, we can uh, help and support. And I'm very happy that I've been able to do some of that. It's interesting, you've listed some of the many, you know, you say boring things that need to be done to create a modern nation state. And I'm hearing CJ from the West Wing when she was asked, you know, yeah. if you do anything, I want to build a road in Africa. Right. Um, but, I mean, you've been working on drainage and sewerage and, um, the, you know, the, the, the absolute basics of institution building, um, both infrastructure and um, civil service and so on. How is that going? How do you build those things from scratch? Um, well, um, Timor is improving significantly. Uh, the economic growth is around 10%. Um, you know, inflation are around 4 or 5%, but there is growth. Um, it is peaceful. It is safe. The United Nations mission has gone. The Australian Armed Forces have left. It's now independently running its own police force and armed services. It's a free and open country. Um, you know, uh, I often compare it, say, to our other near neighbour, Papua New Guinea, where if you go there, you find that you might be in a compound at night in a curfew, uh, whereas in Timor it's open. 
you can be on a restaurant on the on the waterfront. Uh, you can be moving around. It's um, it's a very peaceful place. In fact, the travel warnings on Timor Leste now are less severe than the travel warnings on Indonesia. Mm. It is a safe place. That brings about, of course, economic growth because people want to invest and and um, and uh, and contribute to the country. Um, but as well, you know, Janana Guzman and his government has set about to look at the resources they've got, particularly from oil and gas from the Timor Gap, which is, we can only, we can only wish for this in Australia, which is um, uh, in a sovereign wealth fund, independently invested, and the capital, the corpus and the interest cannot be touched constitutionally, and all they take out of is a transparent royalty which funds about 80-90% of their budget and the infrastructure and the support for the country. And so that, that fund has been growing, and if they get more money from other developments in the Timor Sea, well, then that will add on as well. Um, and things are improving. Uh, the um, roads are improving after a, a long period. Um, you're seeing the electricity interruptions have almost gone. The transmission system is now around the country, and the supply, electricity supply has been improved. Um, you're seeing some developments in, um, in tourism, uh, you mentioned sewerage and drainage, particularly in the regional areas. Uh, that's improving enormously. So, so things things are improving. But of course, you know, just imagine this for a moment. If you had somewhere like Adelaide, which is comparable in the population size of Timor Leste, and you said to Adelaide, "You are independent. You can run your country." But in the meantime, we a quarter of your population has been killed, mostly able-bodied men. Another 6,000 or so have been driven out back to another country for fear of losing their pensions, which happened to Indonesia. Um, the place has been sacked and burnt and destroyed, and all the institutions are, are not there. There you go, start again. That's the task. So when you think it's taking some time, it'll take some time wherever you did it. It's a generation loss, and it's probably a generation to rebuild and get some capacity to achieve the things that you need to achieve, but that's happening. Mm. And it's happening democratically, peacefully, uh, with support, of course, from uh, other nations, but mostly from the priorities of the government itself, which is important. Kirsty, what about for um, if you're poor uh, in, in Timor-Leste? Um, Steve's just given us a... Um, a, a positive, uh, you know, and very true uh, portrait of that infrastructure um, development, it, it, does it improve life for everyone? Um, there's still a good deal of poverty, and particularly in the rural areas beyond Dili and the district capitals. Um, you know, having said that, to sort of add a few more positives from the perspective of the health and well-being of women, um, you know, fertility rates have dropped significantly from sort of 7.8, I think, um, to 5. Um, also, the infant mortality rate has um, been reduced quite significantly. In fact, Timor-Leste is on target to achieve Millennium Development Goal number four relating to uh, reduction of infant uh, mortality rates by two-third um, by 2015. So, in fact, this has been achieved and it's something that um, my Alola Foundation can, in a very direct way, take some credit for um, in that... Uh, it has been the main partner of government in promoting a whole range of maternal and child health um, initiatives, including promotion of exclusive breastfeeding for the first six months of life. And um, rates of exclusive breastfeeding have improved from around about 30% in 2005 to uh, around about 65% in 2013. So that's really significant mm. and I think has, you know, been one factor in, in the reduction of infant mortality. That is fantastic. It's, it's also, I would have thought, um, unusual that you'd still have a, an average number of five babies and still be heading to that millennium goal by next year. That's really yes. something. What about women more generally? Uh, and because that's another great indicator, of course, of development is, mm -hmm. is women's place in, in culture and um, control of money, 
Um, how, how, how does it fare for, for women? Timor-Leste is a very patriarchal um, society. There's a good deal of uh, family violence. In fact, it was the single most reported crime throughout the period of the UN um, transitional administration continues to be a big problem today, as it is, of course, in Australia, as we know. Um, it has been defined as a public crime um, in the domestic violence uh, legislation that went through, I think, in 2010. Um, but there's still a long way to go in terms of um, changing the, the culture, changing the attitudes, inc encouraging more women to actually report uh, family violence as a, as a public crime, um, and also getting court actors, you know, law enforcement agencies to understand that this is not a private um, matter. And, you know, all of this takes a good deal of time. I've been involved um, very directly and very personally in a number of um, cases uh, of domestic violence over the years and it's been quite disturbing to see the way in which um, often the offenders are actively supported by members of the community and also in some cases by, by police officers and, um, you know, to the detriment of, mm. of the women concerned. Mm. So, yeah, there are a lot of... Um, quite serious issues for for women um, and, you know, having access to uh, a health service um, that is uh, free and available to all, you know, is a, big, is a big problem. I know from my experience of breast cancer and the work that I've done at est establishing a women's cancer support network that essentially if you are poor in uh, Timor-Leste, you know, a cancer diagnosis is pretty much a death sentence um, unless you have, you know, the financial means to get yourself uh, overseas and get treatment there. Um, it, these are the levels, aren't they, of building and building, um, uh, you know, a, a country uh, from, from where it began just a few years ago. One of the ways, of course... Um, to me at any rate, it seems that it would, would really boost this along is, of course, if Australia just backed off and uh, was more generous and reasonable in uh, accepting a median line uh, for the division of the spoils uh, in the Timor Sea. And uh, as somebody who's not an expert on um, East Timor or maritime law, um, I read about it and I think about it and I just, it just doesn't seem fair. Am I wrong, Steve? <laughs> well, well, actually, it, it, it is it's definitely not fair. Um, in a sense, um, if uh, Timor-Leste had the opportunity to develop its own resources as every other sovereign country would, it wouldn't need the sort of aid which is being provided by Australia or other countries. It would be worth much more to them. And just to put it in perspective, the, the Timor gap is already in place in a sovereign wealth fund. That's 50% of it going to Australia, 50% to Timor in a, a, joint, um, a joint area. The area under dispute is the next area for development, which is called the Sunrise Field. And just to put it in perspective, I won't go into detail. I can questions as well, but um, it is about... The area in dispute is about 400 kilometres from the shores of Australia. It's about 150 kilometres of the shore of Timor. Maritime law says that if something is within 200 kilometres of your seabed, you've got exclusive rights to mine it uh, and to operate it yourself. And yet Australia has 50-50 of this resource, which is, which is 400 kilometres from Australia's shore. Why is that the case? because that was negotiated. And it was negotiated at a time when Timor had, very early on, just formed a, a new government. And they were negotiating with Australia on this area because they'd previously inherited that position largely from Indonesia, when it was previously an Indonesian colony. Um, and they were negotiating. And the very point of negotiation that was happening 
it, it is discovered now and is a subject of a, a case in the International Court of Justice. Um, Australia had offered support for the uh, upgrade and development of the Prime Minister's office and the contractor on AusAid who was upgrading the office was instructed by ASIS under authority to uh, put listening devices in the walls of the Cabinet Room at the very and precise time that the negotiation was going on about the Sunrise Field. How do we know that? Because a whistleblower subsequently from ASIS has come to the Timor government and said that was the case. And so Timor is quite rightly taking a case... And, and in fact, the Australian government doesn't deny it, do no, they? they don't deny no, it. They don't confirm it either. But... They don't deny it. Mm. Um, and so... Timor quite rightly, Timor Leste quite rightly, is taking a case, as it should, in the International Court of Justice on unconscionable conduct because um, obviously that negotiation was done without, um, you know, with prior knowledge, if you like, industrial espionage, as we know it usually, getting, gaining information wrongly through, um, uh, in this case, listening devices. That, court, that case is going on. And that may not be determined for some time. In the meantime, there's some negotiation on trying to get a boundary. It would be fairer, it would be better to have a firm, identified boundary and let Timor Leste just get on with its own resources as every sovereign country should. And that would be the best benefit Australia could ever give in negotiating and working through that. In the meantime, of course, in the conduct of this case, there's been some reprehensible behaviour which has occurred. The very whistleblower has been visited, who was giving, about to give evidence in the International Court of Justice, was visited by 20 ASIO officers and his passport and that of his wife was confiscated, prevented from going to The Hague. The lawyer, Bernard Cleary, who was collecting the case, his officers were raided and documents taken. And so an interim order needed to be uh, obtained from the International Court of Justice to ask Australia to desist from doing that. And that interim court order was obtained by the International Court of Justice and Australia has been required to desist from that behaviour in the collection of that case. It would be much simpler, it would be much better and it would be certainly of great long-term benefit to Timor-Leste if they simply were able to do what every country does and that's able to have sovereign rights in a border over a territory which is closer to them clearly than any other country. They're trying to unpick this deal now, um, which they gave up their rights to that boundary for, for 50 years. Yeah. Um, and what they're now saying, of course, is that because of the unconscionable conduct that it was mm. unfair yep. in order to be able to rejig the whole thing and do what really should have been done from the beginning. Mm. How much, uh, both of you, Kirsty, is this holding up the planning, the politics, the infrastructure building f for this country? I think um, it, it's more a question of a, of a sovereign right. You know, Timor-Leste has a right to a permanent maritime boundary. It has never had that. You know, it's had all of these ad hoc resource sharing um, arrangements uh, over many years. Um, but what it really needs now is this permanent maritime boundary and for a median line to be established according to... Um, you know, international law. Um, and, you know, I think this is a great sort of source of uh, pride to the Timorese that, you know, we, we are owed this by Australia. It's not, a, not an act of generosity, as Alexander Downer would have us um, believe. It's actually a sovereign right. Um, Australia has negotiated you know, similar maritime boundaries with Papua New Guinea, with New Zealand, with New Caledonia, I believe, and without too much fuss. So well, what without is any the oil. problem? Mm. Yeah. Mm. Exactly. It is outrageous. I mean, um, I, it just... Yes, it is. And to your point also, what could Timor-Leste do with that um, resource if they got it? Well, you're talking about if it was shared somewhere around $15 billion, which would be in the fund and earning interest and therefore funding infrastructure and other projects. If they solely had that, it could be almost up to $30 billion. That would advance significantly a whole series of infrastructure developments, um, sewerage and drainage in Delhi, a sanitation, which is important, and that has enormous 
uh, ongoing benefits, um, if that was able to be done in a timely way um, in relation to dengue, malaria and other consequential issues which costed an enormous amount of money, enormous amount of money. Um, uh, roads, uh, the development of a, um, a proper port, all those areas which would help in the terms of trade and the way the economy could develop. So it's really an opportunity um, to, for Timor-Leste to develop its own economy effectively with its own resources, which is uh, up for grabs here. Mm. And I can't see why Australia... Number one, Australia doesn't need it. We just don't need it. I would right? have thought we were doing well um, enough with our own mining. Yeah. Number two, it is fair and reasonable for a sovereign country to have a defined boundary for its own resources. Uh, number three, it would obviate the need for the enormous amount of aid as well, if, and you probably need less aid and support, and isn't that better? And the country determining itself what it wants to do under its own strategic plan. So what is the politics of it then here? Um, I think it's... Um, the politics of it, I think, are just protecting previous decisions of previous governments of all political persuasions, but... Yeah, it's been everyone, hasn't it? Uh, yeah, in this case it was, um, you're right, Alexander Downer signed the document which allowed that bugging to occur. He, he did at the time as Foreign Minister. But I think it's um, about Australia saying, well, now we have the, now we have the, um, the, the joint territorial um, arrangement. Um, we, want to, we want that contract to be adhered to. I think that's probably as, as simple as that. Uh, but I can't believe that Australia would be uh, in a position where it would uh, maintain this for the long term. I think there must be some changes to this very soon. There's always been moments, it seems to me, like this with Australia and East Timor, of sort of unsavoury moments yep. uh, where, in fact, public opinion's been so far ahead, whether it's Gareth Evans drinking his champagne um, up in an aeroplane yes. uh, as foreign minister uh, or uh, the time, of course, that it took uh, for, for Australia to get in and do, do what what it could do to support the Timor, East Timor's pe people. Um, I, I, I guess it is one of the other reasons this isn't burning hot, that Timor-Leste is just not in the forefront of our thoughts at the moment. That there are, It's one of the reasons why we wanted to have this event tonight, that it's a, it's a bit off the radar, I think, here at the moment. Does that matter? Is yeah, probably, probably that is partly the case, gaining attention for this issue and having a high pro higher priority than it should have had. That's, that's important, I guess, uh, from that point of, of view. But, um, and I can probably say this more than uh, Kirsty can, but... Um, that's why I'm picking Australia on Australia has um, yeah. had a sometimes good, sometimes very poor relationship with, with Timor-Leste. As I mentioned in the Second World War, we effectively landed troops in the country when we didn't have permission to do it. And you could almost argue that therefore the theatre of war occurred in Timor-Leste when it wouldn't have occurred. Um, we were acquiescent, some would say complicit, on the invasion of Indonesia in 1975. It may be the case that intelligence was shared between Indonesia and Australia for that to occur. Certainly we did not support the UN resolutions on independence for Timor-Leste, as most other countries did. But then again, we, we did, of course, we, do, we are the largest uh, donor in terms of aid to the country, around 60 to $80 million a year. We did, of course, have the International Stabilisation Force in place in 1999, which... Um, uh, after the militia were, were sacking uh, Timor-Leste more broadly uh, in order to, for the, the nation to uh, be governed independently. Um, so, you know, it's, it's not simple, but there have been points of friction and you would think that this is another one, a point of friction, which could easily be resolved, I would have thought. And also a point on which there's a tremendous um, gap between government policy and public opinion. And I've seen that over and over ag again in relation to Timor-Leste since my days of activism back in the 1980s. It's weird, isn't and it? just it's... seeing just 
the tremendous yep. goodwill that exists within the Australian community towards Timor-Leste, first towards the independent struggle, and now towards the process of rebuilding. You know, we have um, some 40 friendship associations that are a combination of, mm. you know, local government-driven and community-driven uh, rotary groups, you know, uh, huge numbers of community organisations and individuals that are... Um, you know, really passionately uh, working alongside the East Timorese to rebuild um, the nation. And um, I read a couple of days ago that actually back in um, September, a, an Australian soldier who had served in Timor um, spoke out about um, how he feels that Interfet's legacy um, has been eroded by this very, you know, bloody-minded um, attitude of, you know, successive Australian governments to the Timor Sea. That's really interesting. Oil and the ga gas and negotiations. Really, yeah. And I think, you know, also erodes um, the goodwill from tremendous numbers of, of Australian people who really have Timor Leste's interests at heart and who can see from the many visits that they're paying and the needs that they're seeing, just seeing the difference mm. that this can make to the future of, mm. of the country. I mean, this is not some sort of paternalistic favour. This is about maritime law, which, I mean, yeah. you mentioned the riparian rights of 150 kilometres or uh, from, from land, but the other one, the, these disputes are just done by a line through the middle where it's dispute, you, you put it... East Timor wins on every front. It's just wrong. Um, yes, look, it's hard to get behind. Um, I haven't given a satisfactory answer to your question, I think, on why. It's hard. I think part of it would be that Australia never expected in, uh, Timor-Leste to become independent. Its agreements were historically with Indonesia. They've been caught on the hop a bit, really. And they're not sure what to do in a sense, and all they're doing is adhering to those arrangements that were there prior to Timor-Leste becoming an independent nation. I think that's part of it. Um, but, you know, Kirsty is absolutely right. The, um, there's a great support across Australia for Timor-Leste in all sorts of fields, in education, in health, in a whole range of areas. There's a whole lot of people here who've helped through local government, through um, uh, friends groups and others, and, uh, you know, there's, there's so many people who are... Uh, supporting uh, Timor-Leste, that you hope that that over time that will have influence on the Australian government also to consider its position on this as well. Can you tell us a bit more, Kirsty, about the about the, the the different feelings, I suppose, or the and the, the cultural connections between uh, East Timorese and and Australians? Um, I mean, I think of places like India, and people always, you know, there's cricket and there's this and there's that. What are the what are the day-to-day -day things for East Timorese that that may connect them to Australian life? Um, I think they're probably, you know, more differences really than than similarities. Um, but having said that, I think um, there've been very many opportunities for for exchange, you know, both um, professionally and um, culturally over the years. Um, I know, you know, of very many um, sporting events in um, the Northern Territory where Timorese have an opportunity to to come and share their passion for, you know, ball sports, for example. Um, lots of opportunities too for professional development through the. Um, uh, friendship associations that I mentioned um, earlier. And I think um, the Timorese often talk about how they love the Australian um, sense of, um, you know, disrespectful authority, if you like, and, and also very informal, um, <clears throat> very down-to-earth and practical nature. Um, and occasionally, you know, I hear people sort of uh, comparing Australians to uh, Portuguese um, citizens who are, you know, have been residing in um, in Timor for a long period of time. And they'd say just, you know, how much more laid back Australians are and how they're prepared to actually get their hands dirty, to, you know, live in, in villages without running water for long periods of time, to really, you know, do the hard yakka and... Um, 
you know, I think there's some very strong connections that have been been developed at the people-to-people level, which, you know, is um, the one at which I guess I, I'm engaging on a daily mm. basis through my work for Lola and also in the education spheres. Tell us um, more, because this is also very much connected to your work about um, language and uh, what... Um, what threatens language in East Timor, what you're doing to support language and and about how language works because there's so many different Mm. languages. Yeah, well, my passion for language actually grew out of my experiences of going to school and learning Indonesian and later Italian um, here in Victoria. And um, I knew from my very many visits to Indonesia throughout the 1980s that, you know, language is a really powerful tool um, offering you, you know, a window into another culture that you wouldn't otherwise have. And I think, you know, I developed such a tremendous fondness for Indonesian culture and society on the strength of, you know, my language skills. So moving to Timor, you know, after independence, I was sort of very conscious of the very powerful role of language and very tuned into the sociolinguistic uh, backdrop there. So Timor-Leste has about 30 local languages, um, including Tetum, which is the lingua franca amongst them, and also co-official language uh, with Portuguese. Um, I guess one of the legacies of colonialism is that Um, For many Timorese, a lot more importance was attached, particularly in the education system, to the teaching and learning of Portuguese than to the teaching and learning of Tetum, in spite of the fact that, you know, as few as 25% of people actually speak Portuguese um, in the country. So what we saw for the first um, 10 or so years um, was that there was a very heavy emphasis on the teaching of Um, Portuguese with quite disastrous consequences for kids learning. So in 2009 the World Bank did a study called the Early Grade Reading Assessment which showed that something like 70% of Grade 3 and Grade 4 students um, could not read a single word of a text they were provided with, either in Tetum or Portuguese. So um, that really just confirmed what uh, Myself as Goodwill Ambassador and also the UN, um, sorry, the UNESCO National Commission, which I chaired for a number of years, have been saying, which is that children need to learn to read and write first in their mother tongue and to slowly transition to other languages. So second language, Tetum, third language, Portuguese. It's not about you know, whether Portuguese was a good choice or not. You know, lots of Australians kind of argue, why didn't they choose English? Well, I'm actually not of that belief. I think English has a role too. But um, English doesn't resonate culturally, historically, uh, with with Timor at all. I think, you know, Portuguese was actually um, a good choice. But what we have been doing badly is um, the way of introducing these languages and imposing Portuguese uh, too early on small children. So we have a very high enrolment rate, but we also have a very high dropout rate. And that's due to lots of factors, including economic factors, but the language one also really needs to be taken into account. So I'm happy to say that there has been a shift. Um, A number of years ago, our UNESCO National Commission Um, initiated a mother tongue based multilingual education program uh, pilot in three districts and at the time there was an election looming, this was um, I guess early 2012 and we organised a seminar to try and raise awareness of the importance of mother tongue education and it ended up sort of turning into um, a huge brawl and um, I had people coming and sort of pelting bits of paper at me and um, people threatening to throw chairs and, you know, it was very, very heated and I guess, you know, that just sort of highlights really um, the close link between language and and identity, you know, which um, people feel very, very strongly about. Um, But, you know, the fact that people 
were resisting, um, you know, a very important initiative which would not only help kids to learn but would also guarantee the survival of those 30 languages because um, there are at least two or three of them that are actually se seriously um, endangered oh, and um, will die out, you know, unless they are granted a role in the education system. So you'd think that that would have been a source of pride and that people would, would naturally value their culture. Um, but as I said, one of the legacies of colonialism is mm. that you attach more importance to the culture of a, you know, a country than on the other side of the world mm. and uh, then you do your own. So, Are there any schools anywhere in Australia, Steve, that teach any Timorese languages? Um, I don't think so. <coughs> Teton, I don't think... You'd, you'd know that, Kirsty. I don't think there is. Um, no, I don't think so. No. I mean, you can't... You can barely learn Hindi or Indonesian in Australia anymore, so I suppose yeah. it's mm. a ridiculous uh, notion, isn't it? But it, but it, it's, it's crazy that it... I mean, we, we teach kids French in primary school here still. Yes. Mm. Um, yes. <laughs> the, um, the Constitution, I think, enshrines Portuguese as the official language of the country. I alongside Tetum. Alongside yeah. Tetum. I think that's what Kirsty was talking mm. about. And um, I don't think it necessarily you know, should be English. or I mean, there's a good case for um, Indonesian, actually, as well, given the... Um, the economic future is probably as much of Indonesia as Australia and the, the marketplace and the trading opportunities are significant there. Um, there's probably as strong an argument there as there is anything else. Uh, but one of, the, one of the big problems is that, you know, if Portuguese is the official language or the second official, how do you get the trained teachers? How do you get the people in the legal system? And that's, that's a real issue. So it's not just... Not just um, uh, learning Portuguese, but having people being able to teach it as mm. well. And that's, that's been a big issue, Kirsty, as well, hasn't it, really? Yeah. Yes. Mm. Um, you know, with very, very low levels of fluency in Portuguese, it's been really challenging yeah. for teachers. So there's actually a curriculum reform process underway at the moment, which means that there are teams of Timorese, you know, environmentalists, historians... Um, experts in social studies and, and in language that are writing their own curriculum, which is a first. Um, so this will be for grade one to six. And there is now, uh, with the, under the current government and particularly under the current Vice Minister for Pre-Primary and Primary Education, Dulce Suarez, a very um, serious understanding and appreciation of the importance of the teaching of Tetum and local other local languages. Now, we can't sort of institute nationally immediately a mother tongue-based multilingual education program because we don't have the resources to develop teaching materials in all of those languages. But even just the recognition that there now is of the importance of Tetum as the language of literacy, of first literacy, is really quite a breakthrough. Mm. And I think we will see immediately, once this curriculum is rolled out, huge improvements in um, rates of acquisition of reading and writing skills and also um, a decrease in the dropout rates. Mm. Um, one more question and then we'll throw it out to the audience. So if you want to ask a question, put your hand up. Um, and if there's a microphone in it, you'll be next. Uh, Steve, what sort of an economy with, the, with what you're looking at, what we've talked about with the oil, mm. um, I assume that East Timor would not be in its long-term interest to be dependent on oil, that it needs a diversified economy what what is the what's the future dream for how that might look well Timor Leste has a a defined 20-year strategy plan for the country in a whole range of areas um, it's a very well developed plan it was praised by donors from around the world it was praised by the UN it's um, it's it's really the prism on which each of their budgets is undertaken and, and what they want to do in any one year um, and in terms of the economy, it's in three parts. One is 
um, looking at value adding from oil and gas from from mining, not simply extracting, but looking at the technology transfer that can occur. So having as much as you can in country, and therefore having some of the the jobs and the and the technology transfer that occurs by having it in country, and some of the infrastructures required to go with that in developing it. And that's a key and important priority for the government, and that's one of the reasons why they're so strong on the, um, the, uh, the Sunrise Field and getting control of that resource. The second is in, um, in agriculture, the second objective in, in the economic policy for the country. Uh, Kirsty's right, I mean, uh, um, there's... Uh, it's a very poor country and it's certainly poorer as you go outside Dili or Bacow or some of the major cities. Um, agriculture is extremely important, but of course um, irrigation has not been maintained, so you're not getting the sort of yield that you'd get if you were able to, to retain water and utilise that for several crops, not just one. Uh, just the utility value of being able to feed your own population with um, rice and maize would have a significant economic value, enormous economic value. And if you could do that through better um, agricultural practices and capitalisation and uh, better irrigation, which gave better yield, then you might be able to get, um, the plan says, a surplus which you could trade across the border as well, which would also assist the economy enormously, whether that's in rice or maize or fish processing or uh, re-establishing um, or expanding coffee production, those sort of areas. So agriculture is very important, and it's one area which you can spread economic growth around the country if, it's, um, if you look at the, the upstream value of processing in the country some of those agricultural products too and looking at feeding a population and therefore, and, and therefore some export as well. And the third is tourism. It's a beautiful country. It's a beautiful country, you know, uh, mountainous, beautiful beaches, um, but that requires a extra product. It requires uh, hospitality training. The aim is to have two or three hospitality training um, uh, colleges around the country in looking at um, uh, and how that, that's done. It's, uh, it's also about product, uh, better roads, uh, better sanitation, um, uh, so better things which you can offer in tourism product over time because that will have significant value and that's the third area which the government's concentrating on as well. Not exclusively but they're sort of three of the high priority mm -hmm. areas. Inbound investment is extremely important, and I think it relates to the question you asked before as well. It is not a given that Australia will be the major investor into Timor-Leste. In fact, if you look now, Australia is probably not the major investor. Um, China has a significant investment, and it's invested in some of the public buildings and, and uh, construction activity in the country. Indonesia is investing in the country. Europe is, and Portugal is, the telecom, the, tel the, the, the telco system. It is contestable. It's not like the Solomon Islands. It's not like Papua New Guinea. It's not like Fiji, in which the major sphere of influence is a bilateral arrangement for Australia. This is contestable. It may be that, um, that Europe has a bigger influence, has already got a big, big influence uh, already. It may be China and Asia, it may be Indonesia. Australia, it's not a given. And we're not seeing that much investment from Australia significantly in the country in terms of private sector. Probably the biggest single company would be Toll Holdings, who did the logistics, really for the armed services and others, and they've still got a residual operation there, some of the security arrangements. Um, Timor Plaza, but then they're part Timorese family, aren't they, from Darwin, really? So, um, in terms, uh, but but if you look at the hotels, most of these those have been refurbished from um, either Portugal or Indonesia um, investment or other Malaysian investment. If you look at that, you know that's where a lot of the money's coming from. So, I think encouraging that inbound investment further would be also extremely important for the economic future of the country. Um, and I've been arguing strongly that Australia should take it more seriously and have trade missions there and investment missions, but we aren't. We don't even have an Austrade officer in the country. Uh, just to show you how ridiculous that is, when I was pushing for that, I was pushed several governments to try and at least get an Austrade facilitator in the country so they could deal with business interest, uh, delegations and people who might want to invest in the country. They said, oh, no, our Austrade officer or office for Timor is in Jakarta. How and ridiculous. Same, uh, well, How ridiculous. Is there a consul office? And they no. eventually conceded and uncoupled that. Now they've got a small operation out of Queensland, which is only 
a few hours a week. So if we're serious, we should have people there in the country who are facilitating some of that trade and investment as well. Put your hand up if you uh, would like to ask a question. G'day. Just got a quick comment and then a question. Uh, the first comment is if people are listening and getting really outraged at um, what they're hearing about Australia's behaviour when it comes to the gas and oil issue, I'd really encourage you to sign up for updates on a website called teamorcjustice.com. Um, and in the new year, we'll be launching a, a, a funding request, or a, a crowdfunding request, to get a campaign up and running, uh, as we did in 2005, to try to shift Australia's position on this. Um, but to my question, I was just wondering if, if our guests had any comments about um, the recent decision in Timor to kick out, I understand, um, members of the legal profession and whether, uh, whether you had concerns about that or, or what that kind of signalled or some background info. Yeah, I will th- if you okay, I might um, tackle that one. And thank you for your um, earlier comment as well and uh, it would be great if people could contact you. I know that campaign is a strong one and it would be great to keep it up. Um, the, um, the government has had under review the Portuguese judicial system which has operated in the country since... Um, well, um, you know, for the 374 years of Portuguese rule and uh, was interrupted for the 28 years of Indonesian rule and is now still there in the new constitutional arrangements. But always an independent country would, would want its own independent judiciary. And that's an understandable move and it's something that's happened more recently. And it was a democratic move of their parliament. It wasn't a, um, an issue which was taken lightly. In fact, it was... Um, it was more than a three-quarters majority of the parliament. It was about 80% of the parliament. That is the opposition as well. And the opposition is a very strong opposition. Fretland is a very strong opposition. But they voted with the government in parliament to have an audit of the judicial system, which was a sensible thing to do for the maturity of the government where it was at that time. Some of the Portuguese judiciary who were there from Portugal in the country didn't want that to happen, and they've left. Um, um, Timor is now looking to Australia and the Supreme Court in New South Wales to assist in some of the training and support required for the judicial system and, of course, to make sure they've got their own trained people in the country as well. There was a capacity question. There was a, a question about the competence of the people in the country and they were quite right to re-examine it. And I think um, out, they do adhere to the separation of powers. Um, this was a overwhelming majority of all parties who decided that they wanted to look at uh, an independent judicial system in the future which was better suited to Timor. And I don't believe that the system of justice that was um, there from Portugal was actually ideally suited to the country anyway. And I think most people from the judiciary in Australia would have that same view about it as well. So I think you can take some encouragement at heart that there will be some... um, some better establishment of uh, judicial function in the future, really based much more on common law and based much more on the system of um, the judicial system which we have really in in Australia. Hello. um, Thank you for your very interesting comments tonight. Um, I've got a question about the South Coast development. And I'm wondering what your opinion is about... um, the amount of money that's being spent on, a south, on the South Coast development, given that there aren't actually any contracts to underpin the oil production and how that could alternatively be spent... I mean, would it, could it alternatively be spent to strengthen the economy in other areas like agriculture that you're talking about? So just your opinion on, on um, that as, a, as an economic strategy. Yeah, um... I think the country needs to do both. I think um, they're right, and I know Alfredo Perez, the resources minister, is very active in the development in the south of the country and looking for a better port and other facilities there. I think they have to be prepared and ready, and I think that's what it's about. There's also domestic oil and gas production, um, which they can utilise themselves already, and that some of that is able to be done through the south coast. So I don't think it's mutually exclusive. I don't think it's crowding out the other investment opportunities in agriculture or tourism. I think it's probably sensible and prudent planning for what... Look, I believe ultimately they will be successful in this case for the maritime boundaries. I think logic says it should be successful either through the International Court of Justice, which will take some 
longer period of time um, process and then establishing a new boundary or through compromise and there is some discussions I understand going on with the Australian Government on that now so I think they have to be prepared and ready for it. Talk, talks about discussions I think going on at the moment. Talks about discussions, well I think there is some discussions It's a pity I think <laughs> anyway isn't it to embarrass ourselves with this kind of... Yeah that is actually yeah. uh, One more Thank you. Thank you. It's been really interesting to be here tonight. Um, I have a question about education and teacher training and particularly about the professional development of the current teachers who are in schools. Over a long period of time, we know there's been lots of um, curriculum that's been developed, um, a lot of it by the Portuguese, and I just wonder if there's um, an initiative to ensure that that curriculum is being presented to the teachers and that the teachers are able to cope with it and present it to the children. Thank you, Lee, and it's nice to see you. <laughs> Lee worked with me on um, the Friendship Schools project of the Alola Foundation in its early, early days. Um, Yes, a very good question. Anyone that has worked closely um, on cooperation in the edu education field would know about um, the challenges of trying to teach in what is essentially a foreign language and teaching a curriculum which has been devised on the other side of the world. Um, that's why this initiative of the curriculum reform that I referred to is just so exciting that this is the first time Timorese people themselves are actually writing the curriculum. I'm actually working while I'm based here in Australia um, for a period of time under contract to the ministry um, to help develop some uh, learning materials, including books, you know, storybooks um, for children about their own um, history. And it might seem a little bit odd that someone like me is, is writing um, those books. I've been writing stories uh, about the resistance struggle based on, you know, the biography of my husband and a number of other resistance leaders um, in the form of historical fiction so that it's engaging and um, it doesn't seem interesting odd at all, kids. actually. <laughs> Not at all. Um, and I'm writing those books in, in Tetum. And... Um, it's just so exciting, I think, for everyone involved in this to think that, you know, very soon, for the first time, Timorese kids are going to have an opportunity to learn about their own history, their own geography, their own culture in the classroom. Um, so there's a whole series of pilots that are going on at the moment to test these materials all throughout, um, you know, the process of development to make sure that it can be used by teachers because the understandings and the capacity of teachers is very limited. So, for example, with the Tetum Grammar work that has, is um, underway, there are detailed lesson plans that talk the teachers through how to teach Tetum Grammar. Now, it might seem inconceivable to you, but um, this is the first time that Tetum Grammar is being written for children. There have been um, Tetum grammars written for foreign adults wanting to learn the language. Um, so this is just, you know, really very, very exciting and it takes into account the very low levels of capacity of teachers. So, you know, um, I think one of the f issues uh, to date has been that there's been a lot of assumed knowledge um, you know, we've assumed that teachers in Timor-Leste have the same sorts of training and background and understandings as an Australian um, teacher would, and they just simply don't. You know, um, Steve referred earlier to, you know, the exodus of the teachers um, back in 1999. So that left us with, you know, zero teaching professionals, basically, and they needed to be recruited from the general populace and often they had a very limited um, educational background themselves. So, you know, it's a very, very challenging business. Mm. 
Uh, fantastic to have you here tonight, both of you. Thank you so much. Um, Kirsty, good luck with all your projects and endeavours and books and dreams. Um, uh, it really, uh, it's been enlightening for me tonight. And Steve Brax, a pleasure to have you here as ever at the Wheeler Centre. Um, and uh, to, you know, let you off the hook for probably one night of whatever it is you do during a state election campaign yeah. these days. Are you missing it? You feeling that sort of, I don't know, lost love or...? Oh, sometimes you want to be there, but... Um, Not very often. Um, I help, help out where I can and support where I can and... Um... Uh, history could be made for the first time in 60 years on the 29th of November. <laughs> oh, please thank our two wonderful guests. And um, just very quickly, because this is the last Fit the State just for this year, um, delighted to say that the series um, and me will be back uh, next year but it is the last one for this year and I, I want to thank uh, Michael Williams, the director of the Wheeler Centre. I want to thank everybody that works at every um, event here to put these things on. Um, I want to thank Oren who does just an amazing job to get a broadcast quality podcast out. So um, for those of you that have never come to the Fifth Estate before, it's a fortnightly discussion where we take up the issues you know, of the day, the really important ones, uh, some that have been done badly and others like tonight I think that have fallen off the radar a bit and we want to get the conversation going. So you can go back and listen to those podcasts and I think, I hope what you'll find is that over the course of a year with this series, there's not much that we, we don't get around to, to looking at. It's been a really especially um, terrific year. I want to thank the regulars that come to the series. Um, I, I kind of know who you are now. <laughs> and, uh, and, but those of you that come for, for a, a special event like tonight, um, I, I'm very, very grateful. And lastly, I want to thank Gemma Rayner, who is the uh, series producer who just does an incredible job. Um, and all of you for coming tonight. So thank you and see you next year and uh, have a lovely summer. Thank you, Sally, for another year of great interviews. That's it for the Fifth Estate this year. But join us again. We'll be back. Visit wheelercentre.com for all the details. And of course, to catch up on sessions on video and in episodes of this very podcast. Take care.